Sam reminded me that I forgot to say the prayer at the end of the children's church. So I'll have to make up for that. Let me open my Bible here. Okay, today's reading of scripture, today's passage is going to be 2 Kings chapter 11. And if you're using your pew Bible, you can change, um, turn to page 317. And we're going to read 2 Kings chapter 11 um, in its entirety. It's quite long, so bear with me, but I want to give it, entire, give it, its, it its due context. Okay. So 2 Kings chapter 11. Let's hear the word, reading of the word of God. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid from Athaliah so that, they were, that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year, Jeho- Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards, and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate, sir, and a third at the gate behind the guards, shall guard the palace. And two divisions of you which come off duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. And the captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and the shields of David, the, the spears and the shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guard stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing there by the pillar, according to the custom. And the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, Bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went out through the horse's entrance to the king's house. And there she was put to death. And Jehoiada made a covenant between, made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke in pieces. And they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord, and he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down 
from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Johash was seven years old when he began to reign. So is the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we come before you as we unpack and as we go through this passage of scripture, Lord, and we pray that you would, would that your truth, the truth of your word would shine forth, that that your truth would reach our hearts. We thank you that you have so called us into your church to, to hear your word today and that you placed us under the authority of this word. We pray, Lord, that we would hear it and that it would be ingrained in our hearts and minds as we go, out, go forth this week. In your son's most holy and righteous name, amen. So what is the Bible all about? If you ask any number of people, you may get several different answers. Many people would may, may say that the Bible is, is, is a wonderful book full of tips and advice so that you can live a better life, good tips for living, a guide on how to live your best life now. Some may say that it's a book of moral laws that you have to keep in order to keep a, a wrathful, vengeful God happy and appeased. Some may say it's just a bunch of different books all brought into collection over one book, over the Old and New Testament, and really there's no coherency between them, no overarching meaning. And for those of us who have maybe read through our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation, when we come to First and Second Kings, which is really just one book, this book was divided between First and Second Kings by the scribes because the, the scrolls would become too long and they wanted to keep the scrolls short and manageable so they could move around, move them around. So when we come to these books in our Bible, we may be sometimes tempted to look as we read through these stories. To look at this as just one episode after another of one failed king of Israel after another. Of a nation falling deeper and deeper into corruption. And we know that in 1 Kings, it it begins with the death of David. And the start of of the reign of David's son, Solomon. And at first, things seem to be going very well for God's chosen people. We see the holy nation of Israel prospering under the rule of Solomon. Solomon becomes a king known throughout all the land for his wisdom as a ruler. He oversees the task of building the Lord's temple and sees that to completion. And all throughout 1 Kings chapter 6 through 10, we see the nation of Israel flourishing over Solomon, flourishing under Solomon. But by chapter 11, the reality of the sinful human heart sets in. Even the son of David, the wise king of Israel, who built the Lord's temple, turned away from the Lord. As 1 Kings 11 verse 9 tells us, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Then by chapter 12, we see the kingdom of Israel divided into two, divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom in Judah. With kings sitting on separate thrones, the king of God's kingdom is torn apart. And through the remainder of First and Second Kings, we see Israel's long history of slow decline into corruption, into idol worship, into the worship of other gods, until ultimately they're led away into the Babylonian, uh, led away to exile by the Babylonian Empire. And while we read through this book, it can, it can, it can seem very tiresome as we're going through. We hear about one king after another. 
And we hear so-and-so became king. And what did he do? What did these kings do? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they walked in the way of their fathers. In fact, after some study, I learned that of all the 39 kings mentioned in First and Second Kings, 20 of them in the southern kingdom of Judah and 19 in the northern kingdom of Israel, only two of the kings, both kings of Judah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. I guess it's hard to behave when you're a king. And we might look at this and say to ourselves, this is God's kingdom? This is the holy nation of Israel? What a mess! And this should be of no surprise to us today when we look around at the state of our political nations. We see such dysfunction, such corruption, such wickedness. Even the king of Israel, even the kingdom of Israel with God's laws, the established law of the land, couldn't overcome their sinful nature and get things right. So within this unfolding drama of redemptive history, we come to our passage today in 2 Kings chapter 11. And quite abruptly, we see Athaliah, the mother of the king of Judah, rising almost out of nowhere, out of the middle of nowhere, to destroy the royal family. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 is all substance and no fluff and waste no time. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed the royal family. Now it's important here with this, with this verse to give some background on exactly who Athaliah was. We learned from previous chapters that Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab, one of the most notoriously wicked kings of Israel. And Ahab's, wife's, Ahab's wife was Jezebel, and although the Bible doesn't, say, it doesn't um, teach that, it doesn't say that, it's highly likely that this was also the daughter of evil Queen Jezebel. We also learned earlier that Athaliah had been given in marriage as part of a sinful agreement between her father Ahab and, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to marry Jehoshaphat's son, Jeroham, who was next in line for David's throne. And as a result of that marriage, she gave birth to Ahaziah, the one who was to rule on David's throne after the death of her husband. And when Jeroham died and Ahaziah was 22 years old, he did reign in Jerusalem. However, that rule was cut short when Ahaziah visited the northern kingdom of Israel and was killed by their new king, Jehu. And when Queen Mother Athaliah sees that her son is dead, she seizes her opportunity to usurp the throne by killing the entire royal family. And in this chapter, we will see that this unfolding drama once again centers around the throne of David. We see the story of a bloody revolt, the story of an unrighteous ruler, a usurper of the throne. But ultimately, we have an episode in redemptive history that points us to our one true king. You see, loved ones, the Bible is ultimately about Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, we can read through these books and miss what it has to teach us about God's redemptive plan. We need to remember to approach these historical narratives as part of God's larger unfolding revelation. We need to come to this passage with a hope to learn more about God who he is, and who we are before him. So as we unpack this chapter and these verses, I want to focus on three things. I want to focus first on the promised king. Second, I want to focus on the usurper of the promise. And finally, on the promise fulfilled. The promised king. And being that we see this drama unfolding around the throne of David, we might rightly assume that the promise that comes into question here is the promise that the, the promise, the covenant that the Lord made with David. 
Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what did God promise David? Verses 12 and 13. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, God was promising that through the line of David would come one whose kingdom would never end. But really this promise goes back a lot further than that. It goes further back than 2 Samuel and all the way back to the garden. Back to, the, to our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they fell under the curse of sin and death after being tempted by the serpent. And remember, immediately after the fall in Genesis 3.15, what did God say to the serpent? And he gives that first gospel promise, that first covenant of grace that we enter into with him. He tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise he shall, bruise your, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what God was essentially saying was that he would not allow this sinful condition, this sinful relationship, this corrupt relationship between his image bearer and the, certain, and, and the serpent to continue forever. God was promising that from the seed of the woman he would send a champion who would crush the serpent's head. And as we move through scripture and God's revelation becomes clearer and clearer, we see this promise brought more and more into focus. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God make his covenant with Abraham. And what does he promise Abraham? He promises, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. As we move on to Genesis chapter 9, as we see Jacob place his hand on his son Judah, he proclaims that the ruler's staff shall not depart from between his feet and that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Out of the tribe of Judah, finally, we see the one David, the one through whom God proclaims he will establish his kingdom forever. But as we see in this story, as in chapter 11, in the story of Queen Mother Athaliah, the serpent is not willing to just sit back and accept his defeat lightly. I want you to turn with me now to Revelations chapter 12. Just turn in your Bibles there. Give you a moment. I want to read Revelations chapter 12 because what this, these verses are is a commentary, a commentary out of the New Testament, out of the last book of the Bible that really tells us and sets the scene and describes what's happening throughout the Old Testament in those chapters from Genesis to Malachi. Verse 1 And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has has a place prepared by God in which she will be nourished for 1260 days. And this points us, this chapter in Revelations points us to the usurper of the promise all throughout redemptive history. And as we come to this account in scripture, we can see that this particular struggle between evil Athaliah and the promised king 
is really what the entirety of the Old Testament is about. It's the same struggle that we see between Cain and Abel, Pharaoh against Moses, Ishmael against Isaac, Esau against Jacob, Edom against Israel, Saul against David. You see, all the scenes, all of these scenes, are about the seed of the serpent trying to destroy the promised seed of the woman. They're all scenes about the devil and Jesus, the usurper and the king. And ever since that first announcement of that gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, the serpent has been trying to stay one step ahead of God and has been waiting to devour, to destroy the promised seed, to destroy the promised redeemer. In our passage today, we see the seed of the serpent in Athaliah. As the one who as and we see Athaliah as one who in Romans one who has who has been turned over to a debased mind. I want us to take a very close look at Athaliah here. When verse one tells us that she destroyed the royal family, who exactly are we talking about here? Remember, Athaliah was the mother of the king. These potential heirs, these children that she destroyed, that she slaughtered in her thirst for power and control, and her desire to usurp the will of God? These were her own grandchildren. Look at what happens to people when they're given over to their sin. Those who are unrestrained in their sin. We see Athaliah here doing the very will of Satan. And we have to take heed and we have to recognize that there's no spiritual neutrality here. In this struggle, none of us are neutral. So often we hear people say, well, I I really don't care what the word of God commands. I'm going to do what I want. They're not doing what they want. They're doing what Satan wants them to do. Have a good look at at those who serve the serpent, who are willing to, what they're willing to do to thwart the will of God and to rob God of his glory. We're told in um, 1 John chapter 2 that there are many antichrists that will come. And as one commentator put it, if you were to go back to 1840 B.C. when the events of chapter 11 here were taking place, you would spell Antichrist A-T-H-A-L-I-A-H, Athaliah. And just as we see here in chapter 11 that the serpent is intertwined around David's throne, so it is the same with the church today. The attack of the evil one on the church is real, and it is something that we ought to expect Jesus told us that the world will hate us because it hated him first. You see, the world wants to control the church. It wants to make the church more and more like itself because the enemy knows that the more he can steer the church to become more like the world, the less effective it will be in glorifying God. And in this scripture, as Athaliah sits on David's throne, having murdered all of the royal family, having murdered all of the line of David who could lay claim to the throne, is it, appears as if the serp- it appears as if the serpent has won. But as we're taught in so many passages of Scripture, things aren't as they seem. And we have to remember that sometimes we may look at the world around us with all the war, the pain, the suffering. We see our corrupt leaders, leaders in the infighting, and, the, and we see the church turning away from sound doctrine, turning away from God's Word. And we may be tempted to look around and say, it certainly looks like Satan has won. But thankfully, we have stories like 2 Kings chapter 11. 
Thankfully, we have the promise made by God that the seed of the woman would ultimately defeat the enemy. Yes, the serpent will send his champions, but God sends his. And now we come to our last point, the promise preserved. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. Notice the mention here of Jehoshaphat. She comes up in scripture only this one time, rises up out of the middle of nowhere as the daughter of King Joram. And we see her mentioned only once in passing. You see how the Lord uses seemingly insignificant people to advance his kingdom. She's only mentioned briefly. We don't see her celebrated in the culture as she would be today. She doesn't get to go and speak at all the most uh, um, popular Christian conferences. But she was the one who preserved the royal line at its darkest time, at one of the most darkest times in redemptive history. Yet she just fades into the background. And this shows us that we never know what little things God might use to bring his glory throughout the earth. Yet we are to remain faithful to the task given us while remembering that God is accomplishing his redemptive, his glorifying work, and even though we can't see it. Even when it seems as it does in 1 Kings chapter 11, that the kingdom is only hanging on by a thread. As many of you know, recently we, in Hope Church here, we went through the book of Revelations in our Sunday school. And for those of you who sat through that series and those of you who are already familiar with the last book of the Bible, I want you to notice, I want us to focus here on how the remainder of chapter 11 presents a type and shadow of the ultimate triumph of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. Remember those last chapters in Revelation, that last book of the Bible? Remember how the story ends? What do we see? We see a suffering and a struggling church. And all throughout John's revelation, it seems that the church is only hanging on by a thread. But time and time again, all in those cycles of visions that we see, we see God preserving his bride. We see the return of the one true king, Jesus Christ. And when he returns, we see that serpent of old, the devil, thrown into the lake of fire. And when that lion from the tribe of Judah sits on his throne in heaven, there is rejoicing on heaven and earth and the blowing of trumpets. Enjoy. I want you to parallel this with the ending of our passage, with the ending of chapter 11. When Joash, the son of the king, is seven years old, the priest brings him out and he presents him to the guards, commands him to protect and to guard the king. Everything that's needed for a successful overthrow of the evil queen is provided. They're given the spears and the shields of David. And Joash is brought into the house of the Lord. And the crown of David is placed upon his head. Athaliah, the seed of the serpent, upon seeing the king, knows she has been defeated. And she is put to death. The houses of Baal are torn down and the priests of Baal are put to death. And there's a great procession to the king's house where he's placed upon the throne. And the people of the land rejoice. And although we still wait with anticipation for that last day when our king returns and wipes away every teardrop from our eyes, a time when death will be no more, neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, a time when the former things have passed away, 
That day when those of us who are in Jesus Christ can sing out in everlasting praise. Although we still wait with anticipation, loved ones, we can rejoice today. And we can rejoice because 2,000 years ago on a dark Friday afternoon, the promise seated the woman, our Redeemer, our one true King, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, hung nailed to a bloody cross. And as his disciples and his followers and his mother watched, he lifted up his voice to heaven and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, how the serpent must have thought he had won. But what he could have never anticipated, what he never knew was in that moment was his final defeat. Because you see, loved ones, at that moment, everything that needed to be done for you to be freed from the curse and the power of sin and death, for you to be destined to life eternal, everything was accomplished on that cross. The serpent's head had been crushed. And I know that as we go about our lives in this time between the already and the not yet, this time between Christ's, first, Christ's ascension and his second coming, it may often seem like that victory is not so apparent. Yes, Satan has been defeated and he is bound. He can no longer stop the light of the gospel from going forth in the nations and redeeming sinners. But in God's providence, Satan is still allowed to torment the church. He has not fully yet been destroyed. He is still roaming the earth like a wounded animal. And he still seeks to rob God of his glory in the eyes of the world. And he still attacks and he tempts believers and seeks to run their witness to the gospel. And sometimes when we're under these attacks and the weight of the circumstances of the sin in our lives and the sin in the lives of those around us, this can cause us to look at ourselves and to despair over a faith that sometimes seems so weak, sometimes seems as it's only hanging on by a thread. And when this happens, we often make the mistake of turning to look within ourselves to our own efforts of self-improvement to our, ability, our own ability, to our own drive, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But we are not to look within ourselves. We need to look to the promise made to Adam and Eve, to our first parents, the promise made to Abraham, the promise made to David, the promise preserved throughout all of redemptive history, and to the one who fulfilled that promise, Jesus Christ. So take heart, Christians. Because not only have you been justified and declared righteous through the work of Christ, but you have also been called to adoption into his heavenly family. And his work in you is not yet complete. And that is why we still suffer. Because the Lord is sanctifying you. And he will not allow you to be satisfied in your sins. In closing, I want to close with the words of Apostle Paul as we we think about these struggles in the Christian life and we go through our lives and we experience these attacks. We know that Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, after he spent so much time, the chapters 1 through 7, driving home the point that we are justified and made righteous by our faith in Jesus Christ, gives encouragement to the church. Chapter 8, Paul writes, some of the most encouraging words in Scripture to the church. For I consider that the sufferings of the present times are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And in the end of that chapter, Paul goes on to write, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And to those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those whom he called, he also justified. And to those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We, we thank you that we, you have revealed these things to us and that we are able to come to your word and, and we were able to see your mighty acts, you acting through all of redemptive history to save sinners and to draw your church to yourself. We pray, Lord, that as we go forth this week that we would keep these gospel truths in the forefront of our minds, that it would drive us more and more to seek your glory, Lord, above all things and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We thank you for your holy goodness and your blessings upon us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.